This is MIT Technology Review. These attacks, you know, whether it's terrorism or just general warfare, is never going to be storming the beaches of Normandy again. We're, n- we're never going to see anything like that again. That's Jake Johnson. He's a North Carolina state senator representing three rural counties in the western part of the state. He's 27 and previously served as a county commissioner in Polk County, where he grew up. The future attacks are going to be hacking systems like the water, the cyber, the uh, biological, the, uh, the chemical, but all triggered through these things that are controlled by technologies. Some of the folks that we talk to who think about the future and how this is going to evolve have said, we're already at war and people just aren't acknowledging it. Do you feel that way? <laughs> yes. I mean, why would your normal person living their normal life have any idea this is going on? I mean, there's really, there's zero reason for, for them to know. And if I wasn't in this sector, I, I'm sure I would have no idea. Uh, then you pull the curtain back and you see all these potential threats and certainly not something your everyday citizen is thinking about. This episode, we look to the future and talk to the people who are on the front lines of a war that may or may not even exist. I think we're already already at war. I think cyber warfare has created a permanent state of war in the world where nations are able to attack each other and get away with it constantly. This is nations attacking one another. That's, that's warfare. If you attack a soldier across a border, it's an act of war. But if you, you know, take down a nation's most successful businesses for 24 hours, or if you cut off access to energy for an entire region of the states, okay, no problem, keep on going. It's, it's a strange calculation being made. This is The Extortion Economy, a five-part series from Tech Review and ProPublica about the money, technology, and people behind the ransomware epidemic. I'm Meg Marco. Part five, file not found. There's a computer program that measures the height of the water in the river and how much water is backing up behind the dam. And based on the water level, the sluice gate or the dam will either raise or or lower. But it all depends on how much water is behind there. Paul Rosenberg is the mayor of Rybrook, New York, a small town northeast of New York City. It's not the sort of place where people expected to get attacked by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And yet... I can't in my wildest dreams imagine why this dam was important to them. My thoughts were it was either one of two things. Either they were horribly misinformed and they thought that by raising and controlling the dam that they were going to unleash some sort of Noah's Ark tidal wave and flood out the city of Rye, which is downstream from here before getting to the Long Island Sound, or they were practicing for something on a larger extent. The software that controls this dam is commonly used to control software in other more important dams around the country. The Bowman Dam in Rybrook was not the target of a ransomware attack, but it was part of a series of cyber attacks on American infrastructure conducted on behalf of a part of the Iranian government that is responsible for intelligence. When we spoke to Mayor Rosenberg in 2016, we didn't know that the Rybrook attack would be an early example of how local infrastructure could be vulnerable to attack simply because it was connected to the internet. 
or how common that would become in only a few short years. Several men were indicted for the attacks, and as of late 2021, they are still large and wanted by the FBI. And in 2019, New Orleans also found itself under attack. Just moments ago, the governor declared a state of emergency. That attack happened on Friday and affected over 4,000 computers and devices. The New Orleans Police Department forced to handwrite crucial documents like search warrants. Well, city officials say all of the data impacted by the cyber attack can be recovered, but they did not give us a timetable. Hi, I'm Kimberly LeGroux. I am the Chief Information Officer or IT Director for the City of New Orleans. And in our support system is the public safety agency. So we are also responsible for the information and the support for the police, fire, and emergency medical services. So everything from 911 calls to your local taxes are all in some way part of the same network. So on the morning of December 19th, about 5 a.m., 6 a.m., our director of operations who monitors activity He did notice some suspicious activity and alerts. And about 10 a.m., we started suspecting that there might be a threat looming or brewing in our environment. So we rang the bell at that point, about 10.30 a.m., and we sprung into what we call our emergency response action. So we disconnected from the Internet. We shut down our data center and our servers. We removed the connectivity between our users and PCs from our data center, and we sound a a system-wide, a city alarm. Attention all companies, the city of New Orleans is under a cyber attack. Please power off your computers and unplug them immediately. We have 125 sites, police, fire, EMS, and other city agencies. That includes our recreation centers, our public works facilities, and many public-facing agencies. So we took all of those things, all of those services, were offline. That meant immediately citizens couldn't interface with us. Our phone systems and email communications were offline immediately at that point. So when we, when I think about how it really affected us, it brought our operations to a halt. So by noon, the city of New Orleans had been completely shut down. They had a plan in place and they had practiced it like a fire drill. In the end, the city decided to wipe their systems and use backup data to get everything up and running. Even though they didn't have to pay the ransom, the recovery still cost $7 million. I think public agencies should recognize their value to ransomers and to the world. You hold the data of your citizens. The public trust is an extremely valuable asset. My name is Jake Johnson. I represent the 113th District in the North Carolina House, and I chair the IT Appropriations Committee in the House and then serve on regulatory reform. Public agencies in North Carolina will soon be banned from paying ransoms, and he's the one who sponsored the legislation. And just to give you a timeline, he did this before the Colonial Pipeline attack that shut down the fuel supply to the East Coast of the United States. After the attack, people joked that he must be psychic or have inside information. He says no, he just knows what it's like to be a county commissioner. They're like, what did did you know beforehand? I mean, you must have known something was about to happen because it was literally then, I think a few weeks, if not sooner of that attack happening. And the answer is no, we we had no idea. We learned about that when, when everyone else did. But I will say once that attack happened, everyone's ears kind of perked up on what we can do as far as, uh, cybersecurity and deterring these attacks. And of course, we're like, oh, we've got this legislation ready to rock and roll. 
It's not as simple as just banning ransom payments in the hopes that the problem will just go away. You have to think about the resources that could help prevent the attacks in the first place. Knowing that a lot of these municipalities and counties, a small county where I'm from in a rural area, they just don't have the resources to deal with a, a hit like this. If they're hit with either an individual or a state-sponsored attack, they certainly don't have the resources pretty much trying to figure out how, how do we deter that from happening, but also make sure we have the resources on the back end if, if it were to happen. By providing the funding to improve public systems, they hope there will be fewer successful hacks. And by banning the payments, state money will not go to fund more ransomware attacks. But it's an experiment. We're not saying, you know, we're, we're telling you not to negotiate, but then, sorry, you're on your own. Good luck. No, no we, we didn't want that to be the vibe at all. So now we're seeing the most critical sectors of a society, of a nation, being held hostage, being held captive. So now it's it's no longer about ransomware just affecting a celebrity or a large investment bank. Ransomware is now affecting all of us. Abhishek Prakash is a geopolitical futurist. He focuses on how new technologies, like AI, transform world affairs. To me, it's becoming far more personal and, and that there's huge political undertones here. Wars used to be waged on the battlefield. The way in which nations have fought with one another has changed by via cyber warfare. A lot of these ransomware attacks, a lot of these cyber attacks, you know, based on analysis, these are carried out by state-backed groups. And they're doing this because they can get away with it. The, the way that warfare is carried out, where if you attack me, it's an act of war that doesn't exist in cyber warfare. And, you know, it's, it's constant. It's almost every second there's another cyber attack. But our lives have not been upended. Somehow society has kept on functioning. That's going to, to fundamentally change. So his question is, if you're attacking the infrastructure of another country, are you not already at war? Colonial was energy. Ireland was health. Sweden was food. Well, these are the most critical assets of a nation. So if these are not considered an act of war, then, then what is it only when, it, you know, the, the, the central bank is hit and, and, and the money supply is, is stopped? Is that then considered an act of war? Or is it when a country's nuclear arsenal is held captive? Is that when it's then considered an act of war? Is that what we're waiting for? I think we're already, already at war. I think cyber warfare has created a permanent state of war in the world where nations are able to attack each other and get away with it constantly. And he wonders why more action isn't being taken. There seems to be a missing link somewhere between the threat that societies all over the world are facing and the actions that governments and companies are taking. That there seems to be something missing as to why wouldn't you want to protect this, fix this, take action around this, and and this risk of, of ransomware is it's only going to increase. For example, within the next five to 10 years, we're going to have massive amounts of self-driving cars uh, deployed throughout societies around the world. Uh, and begs the question that will the next ransomware attack hit a city like San Francisco or a city like Dallas or a city like New York where 200,000 people cannot leave their self-driving cars? They're locked in. And the automaker has to pay up if it wants these cars to be unlocked. 
We live in a world where there is money to be made by disrupting any type of infrastructure, public or private, from a small dam in a small town to your smart home. But whose problem is it? Who has a responsibility for cybersecurity? Is it governments or is it companies? Because the lines are now blurring that if an automaker hasn't protected its, its cars, now society is at risk. At the end of our journey through the extortion economy, we asked cybersecurity researcher Fabian Wosar what keeps him up at night. We asked him, what does he worry about? And he told us about the group that concerns him the most. Comte has proven not only that they are incredibly ruthless, but also that they are pretty skilled when it comes to running their operations. And Conti essentially gives their affiliates a lot more freedoms than these other ransomware-as-a-service operations do. The reason he's concerned is because this group is so much more professional and effective than some of the others. Change of pace, let's talk about you know ransomware extortion sites. Going back to what I was saying about how these ransomware groups consider themselves professionals and business people. You may remember Alan Liska. He's an intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. We met him in episode two. You know, so this is what one of the ransomware extortion sites look like. They provide information about the victims, what was stolen, contact information, etc., and, you know, Conti is one of the more prolific ransomware groups right now. You'll even see at the start, at the top of this, the headline for this is the Conti extortion site. So referring to their victims as clients is kind of an, an obnoxious thing to do. So at the end of the day, the group that concerns the ransomware hunter the most is not necessarily the one that gets the biggest headlines. It's the one that operates like a business the one that understands how the extortion economy works. Usually the way these payments are being set up is is that when a victim pays, the money goes to the uh, ransomware as a service operator and they distribute the money to affiliates and to like other parties were involved in the breach, right? In the Conti model, um, the affiliate gets the money And the affiliate essentially promises that, hey, you need to give us as like the operator of like the ransom as a service our share. So it's like very difficult to somehow shake the trust of their affiliates. So you're describing restaurant franchising. Yeah, sort of. It is, yeah. This series is produced by Emma Silicons, Tate Ryan Mosley, and Anthony Green. It's inspired by reporting by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden from ProPublica. We're edited by Michael Riley, Matt Honan, and Robin Fields. Our mix engineer is Eric Gomez and theme music by Jacob Korski. The executive producers of the Extortion Economy podcast are me and Jennifer Strong. I'm Mike Marco. Thanks for listening.